Hi, you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Jonathan Lickkey, co-founder of Lookback. Founded in 2013, Lookback is a video capture and sharing application used by user experience professionals to conduct both moderated and unmoderated user research projects. Prior to founding Lookback, Jonathan founded several companies, including Gosu Gamers, this is one of the world's largest esports websites, and Ripple, a UX consultancy. Additionally, he was one of the original Spotify engineers. Jonathan, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Happy to be here, Jamin. We'd like to start out with this contextual question. What did your parents do, and how did they impact or inform what you're doing today? Sure, it's a great question. So my dad was an engineer and a jet pilot in the Swedish military. And one of the things that my wife and I always think so much about his impact on me was how he is a man of, with a theme. And by that, we mean that there's something very central to his life, a particular interest or hobby at a given time. Uh, and then when you meet him, you will get to know about that theme. And I'm sure you have somebody in your life who's like that. And uh, my wife says that I'm like that. And I kind of have that, you know, when I get something that feels like this is really what I need to do right now, I just can't let go of it. And I think that's part of being an entrepreneur. I, I didn't really know what, what I was, quote unquote, growing up, because I like to do a bunch of different things. But over time, I realized that that's that tenacity of, of, of being like, I need to see this thing built, or I need to see the solution come into the world. I just can't let it go, you know, stay up all night thinking about it. So that's probably the biggest contribution my dad had on me. I feel like that's from him, um, not being sure, but I, I think so. And then my mom was a doctor or is a doctor, and she, she's she been also an educator in communications and teaching a lot about empathy and how doctors can meet patients with empathy and see it from their side and their situation and and all of that. So I grew up with a lot of questions about feelings and a lot of, you know, don't say you did this, say when you do that, here's what I feel. So when you say that thing, that makes me feel angry, you know, and growing up really learning how to verbalize my emotions and, and access them from within my body, identify where in the body the emotions are and, and all these things. And I like to, I like to believe that that helped impact my decision to run this current company, uh, which, which helped, look back, which helps increase empathy at least we hope so with tech companies. So that I think is the, the, one of the biggest things my mom gave me, that whole emotional feeling side of things. You, know, you think about empathy and then also this, this grit to see things through. Empathy is at the core of consumer insights. Did it play an active role when you started your UX consultancy um, and then later, later look back? Yeah, I mean, exactly. That, that I think is a, is a big piece of it. And, and I think user experience is so interesting in that way because it, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a designer and engineer as well, but I don't particularly care for those functions or, or that role per se, although I enjoy it, but I do care about what is the end state that I'm able to put the person using the product in. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm the best at empathy, but I do certainly have built in the reward of identifying when somebody's able to get to that point where they're really feeling good or able to achieve their goal. And that's been kind of in, innate in me in a way that I've been building companies to try to create more of that feeling or, or have that as a reward, more so than financial reward or uh, you know, fame and popularity. It's like, okay, how, how can we get more people use this thing in order to feel good uh, or be more successful? It sounds like it's a lot about enablement, helping yeah. other 
other people attain what is their goal or or even even full potential. Yes, absolutely. That's it. The other thing I think is interesting, you know, your father's a fighter pilot, right? Yeah. Instrumentation is a big part of being a pilot. Yeah. And when you think about user experience, actually user experience was founded in the cockpit. Right. So, you you know, uh, pilots needed to get into a po- cockpit and they needed to have the same experience or similar experience across planes. And, and that's yeah. where, you know, the altimeter and speed and et cetera became, you know, really important as this like unifying force. Yeah, that's a good point. Because my dad, after being a pilot, went into the industry of building airplanes and jet fighters. And so, and, you know, just the other week he was calling me and raving about, you know, how terrible Boeing were doing with, you know, their instrumentation of this, the whole nosedive thing where the pilot has to steer in the right way and how they didn't have enough sensors to accurately measure. And he was saying, when we built these, you know, jet fighters, we had so and so many sensors and this is, you know, and I think that's a core piece of it is like, how do you build that experience that puts the pilot in control, which they weren't in the Boeing, they weren't allowed to because the computer took over. How do you put the person in control to be able to do what they need to do? especially in a time of, of crisis or challenging situation. That's where I think technology really has to trust the human that's, in this case, driving the engine uh, or controlling the machine, has to really trust it to know what it's doing, uh, which, which didn't exist in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, the, you know, to the earlier point, the importance of like muscle memory and like training kicks in in those moments of crisis, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, yeah. and and really, kind of the design of what you do. So I did a little bit of getting my uh, uh, not, you know, my private pilot's license. I haven't completed the process, and I don't yeah. know that I actually will. But as I started that journey, the thing that stood out to me was the importance of checklists and right. and maintaining the discipline around the checklists, regardless of if it was your first flight or it was your billionth flight. There really is like no, it's open ended. You just maintain that discipline. And the checklists get, they happen before you get into the plane. And then there's a whole nother mm-hmm. set of checklists that happen, you know, when you're getting ready to take off. And then there's a yeah. whole nother set of checklists that happen after you've take taken off and you yeah. kind of reverse those procedures. And then similarly, there's checklists that exist for moments of crisis. Right. And I just, I found that really interesting that like really every aspect of the flight has already been decision treed out for you. So that you know right. what to do, and it, and a good pilot has functionally memorized those things, but then also has access to those in a, in quick format, uh, those checklists in mm-hmm. quick format, so that they can then execute the right procedure at the right time. Yeah, and I think that's so important to verify that things are going the way they should be, even if everything is a green light, and not just relying on that. Because I think as we think about scaling technology to millions or billions of people. We can't afford ourselves the luxury of checklisting that everybody's experience was exactly the way that we wanted it to be. And yet, I think that is our responsibility. And it's somehow figuring out a way to ensure that, you know, vital systems like immigration or healthcare or as all of these rely more and more on technology, we can't allow the systems to fully govern that incredibly important and personal experience. So, you know, let's say that the computer or the records state that, you know, you had the wrong history because it pulled up the wrong record or whatever. And, and then we rely on that more so than the word of the person or the experience of the doctor or whatever. And that, I think, is a challenge going forward that we're going to have to figure out. How do you rely on technology without fully relying on it? And like the airplane is a really interesting example of, 
or where we don't really rely on technology fully because we can't allow ourselves to do that. Right. You got actually a laminated sheet that tells you <laughs> these are the, like physically, right? Yeah. There, there you have there. to verify it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, so this is an interesting point, really, the black box that technology builds into our lives, right? The assumption mm -hmm. that Google Maps is in fact giving me the shortest distance between A and B. Right. And, you know, we don't really have a way of validating that because it's impossible for us to be able, well, it'd be impossible for us to validate that, but especially in context of real time. But we do increasingly put our trust in technology that it is operating for our good. And, and the ethical association with that as it relates with the companies is interesting to me because it you know, is in some ways in conflict because the company's objective is to make money. And, and, mm -hmm. and so you, know, you do have this juxtaposition of you know, the, the business has to do good, right? It's going to do the best thing right. within my interest. But at the same time, yeah. you know, they've got to operate in the interest of their shareholder holders as well. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think they're, they're so interesting with emerging technologies that allow not full control of the system by any one player. So, you know, take banking where suddenly I could, I could try to withdraw money and it says, oh, you have zero dollars on your bank account, but, you know, by an error. And I would have absolutely no way of verifying or proving that actually I have, you know, a lot of money in there and hey, give it back to me. That'd be really hard. And I think that the power position that the, the owner or controller of a technology has right now is totally imbalanced. And so moving to systems that are more distributed or needs to be verified by more players at the same time or gives control back to consumers, I think is, is absolutely critical if technology is going to be able to you know, sustain all of the reliance that we have on it and be able to, to back society to the extent that we want it to do. Give us a little bit, a very brief over the elevator pitch of Lookback. Sure. So Lookback is a better way to talk to your users. Specifically for our user researchers, we help with moderated and unmoderated research on mobile and on desktop, uh, remote as well as in person. In full disclosure to our listeners, Lookback and myself have a formal agreement. They have been a sponsor of our 2020 Q1 episode, so very appreciative of that. This, this episode is not sponsored by Lookback. And the reason I think that's really important, and if you are a longtime listener or know me personally, you know that I really don't do anything for money. My motivation is to bring my audience the absolute best content at any given point. And the reason that I wanted to have Jonathan on the show today is because he's birthed or created several very successful companies, Lookback being the last one. And in that process, he's gained a lot of insight in terms of identifying where market is and what the opportunity is, and then also being able to bring to life that particular vision or that particular company. And so what I'd like to do is ask you, sir, uh, what are some tips you would give aspiring technology entrepreneurs? Sure. So that's a good question. I would start with making sure that you understand, fundamentally understand, when what you've built successfully solves the problem. Uh, it doesn't have to solve the entire problem, but as long as one key part is solved better than it was before, then you're good, but you have to be able to verify that yourself. If you're building for somebody else, which you should, you shouldn't assume that you're going to be the end user, but you have to be able to verify, okay, they're now able to do it better than they were before, and measure each improvement that you're making to your product in terms of how much of a benefit is this to end users. 
Now, of course, research helps tremendously in this area. But at the same time, in the beginning, you're going to need to make decisions so often, so rapidly, that you can't rely on every single micro decision being validated or you know, researched up front exactly how well the solution is functioning. And so build, I would say build for yourself or build to the extent that you can validate it yourself. Yet at the same time, you want to build for a higher purpose. And sometimes just serving yourself, let's say that you, know, you have far more money than most people in the world, or you're privileged, or you know, you're able to be, in, to be in a position where you can start a company, which is fantastic, congratulations. Do remember that there are people out there who are not in that position. And so building for yourself while at the same time scratching the itch or you know, solving the need for somebody else or a lot of people out there, I think is absolutely critical. So being able to combine those two is very important. I see sometimes people who are very mission-driven who want to solve problems for somebody else end up not creating really powerful products because they're not able to get to that level of detail understanding of when the, the product actually does what it what it should do, uh, if that makes sense. So flesh that out for me just a little bit more. The last the, the last part, I didn't I didn't quite track with you. I, I get the first part, which is you want to solve a real problem. It needs to be like quantifiable in terms of the overall benefit to the customer. Right. But then you want to make sure that you're not the only one having that problem. Got because it. Because okay. I see some real really great engineers, especially on the like mobile development side or, or you know, they're, they're building these fantastic tools for themselves, the, the best code editors in the world, and they know exactly what they want. It's just like so tailored for them, right? And then you see everybody, the farther away you get from, from engineering, you're using crappier and crappier tools, right? You're sitting in finance, you're like, um, or maybe finance is a bad example, but like you're sitting in a function that's far away and, and you're just, using so clunky tools that are not specifically built for you because nobody fully understands what a great solution for you would look like. Um, so like, that's a really, yeah. that's, I love that. I've never heard that before, which is, I don't know if that's important or not, but that, and then I think that's very, very true. Like the farther a technology is away from actual coders, then the yeah. worse, fundamentally the worse the experience is for the user or the worse it does at solving that particular problem. I mean, I think I think power is shifting to you know product managers and and business leaders who are able to say we're going to go in and solve this problem. But that's where I'm saying if you want to be that kind of entrepreneur who's able to solve a problem that's not necessarily your own, you have to be able to find a way to know whether uh, you've actually solved the problem in each micro interaction. You've got to know each button. Is this better than it was? You know, this flow is this the way that we're thinking about it, the whole mental model is this fundamentally stronger than what was. Instead of just saying, we're going to build a better support tool or we're going to build a better microloan system. But, you know, knowing it intimately is so critical. Yeah. So you need to understand fully the problem. And then you also need to understand the implementation or the user experience uh, of your particular solution. Yeah. It's almost like I would say, if you don't have a co-founder or yourself who personally has experienced this problem, you're not going to succeed. It's going to be really, really hard. You have to surround yourself with people who want this problem solved and who have an intimate understanding of it because it's not enough to just listen to people, you know, every now and then. It has to be very, very close to your heart. So we start with founder market fit and then we move into product market fit. What do you see as one of the largest challenges for a startup or a set of entrepreneurs in today's framework? 
in the product market fit phase specifically? Uh, it could be if you're just starting a company. Oh, sure. So I think a lot of in the, in the beginning, you're very focused on building things and on doing things. And I think a lot of people stop measuring the increased progress that you've done in your understanding of the problem and solution that we just talked about. And so finding a way to quantify how much have we learned and how much better is that going to make us is really important. Because what I see most people, at least kind of tech entrepreneurs, they sit down and the first thing they do is they start to write some code. Or now these days, more people use, you know, they use Figma and they create prototypes and do some testing and, and all that is great. But at the same time, it's very focused around let's start building something. Uh, or let's start creating something or doing a lot of things. So getting to the state where you can where you can appreciate all all of the conversations that you had and all the insights you're getting, basically collecting insights, counting your insights, um, is something I would definitely do more of. And then I would go back to the mission thing, which is it's going to be easier for you to succeed from a customer perspective if you build something that people want, but also from a pure human perspective, I do believe it's going to be more and more important that your mission really resonates with where we want the world to go. And so that the mission is something that a lot of people can get behind. Now, you're going to hear VCs, you know, who say that, that they'll invest whether as long as it makes money. And I do believe that that's true. But at the same time, everyone you're interacting with is a human being. And if you can have a mission that resonates with people, that's going to help you tremendously when you're hiring, uh, when you're getting advisors, when you're getting press, because you know if you're doing something great, people appreciate that and they like you more and they want to talk to you more and so on and so forth. So, uh, increasingly thinking about the mission that's good for the world, uh, not just disguised as good for the world, uh, I think is incredibly important too. You know, it's uh, I, I keep going back to that Steve Jobs quote, which is you know make a ding in the universe. That's overall driving mm-hmm. mission of Apple, and this right. is sort of like just massive aspirational goals. It wasn't about you know, at least the vision that we heard from the outside is that the company wasn't built around, you know, making a billion dollar company. And, you know, if, I'm sure that uh, many people would have different points of view on that. But from an outsider perspective, it was very clearly communicated. The need to create something and then communicate the, the actual vision or connect the vision to the thing that you're creating, I think is one of the biggest opportunities for entrepreneurs because most people just create something and then expect people to use it like a set of features mm-hmm. as opposed to totally. right as opposed to build something that is actually break, creating a better world or making a difference in individuals lives or what have you it's almost like you know are they are they using the tool or are they creating a better world uh, i know that's such a crazy thing to say but i really think that the overarching communication one is a movement and the other is more of a transaction right yeah i mean one way to frame it is like pretending to be a a, a, narr- a, a historical documentary that that says you know in uh, the 2030 the world finally was able to achieve what because jonathan litsky did what and then you know you those what is what you fill in and 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 if you can honestly say that now the world can uh, you know, the, the chat faster using mobile, and that's because Jonathan Whiskey built this great app or whatever. And if I believe in that, and I think that's great. Then sure, okay, great. But if it starts sounding hollow, then then you're like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't really contributing all that much. What is something? So you were part of the original Spotify engineering team. What was something that you learned as that particular engine was getting spun up? 
Um, sure. Well, so I joined the engineering team, and there were lots of brilliant engineers there, for sure. And in particular, a great designer called uh, Rasmus Anderson, who went on also to move to the Valley and joined a lot of companies. He's at Figma now, I believe. And he would always seem, forgive me, but he would seem like the guy who didn't really care what people thought because he just wanted to build this great product. And that was always a little bit hard. And, and it was weird for me because coming in, Sweden is so much about consensus. And it's like, we if there are five people in the group, if five, five people don't agree, then we're not going to do it. And then here was this guy who was like, you know what, all those ideas, you know, they're really bad. We're gonna, Here's what we're going to do instead. And he often got his way. And learning to make the best decisions for the product, not necessarily always finding consensus was one of the big things for me back then. But then also is like, how do we treat one another when we disagree? And how do we create a culture that is able to tie break when you end up in that kind of a lock was, was definitely something I learned there. The other thing I certainly learned from CEO Daniel was just being incredibly bold in his vision. I mean, just a... At the time, it's like being a successful tech company out of Sweden and competing with all these U.S. giants and in, this, in, the, in the industry of music, what a challenge. It's like obviously somebody else is going to join this, this industry, right? It's going to join this to solve this problem. And today you have, I think every large tech company probably has a music app, right? It's like Google, Amazon, and Apple, obviously all do and then so, so he certainly taught me that like going out and you know negotiating all those label deals and and, and doing all those things certainly appreciated there and and have been trying to emulate so yeah and i mean already a, a material incumbent with uh pandora right oh yeah i mean for sure and i mean look at them today they're at like 270 million users uh and i think 160 or something paid the subscribers 160 million it's just fantastic. And, you know, every week, every month, it'd be like, we have to grow because, you know, this market's not going to exist forever. Let's go get it. And we had, you know, several years, but at the same time, he was able to beat that drum continuously. And that for me was very new. I mean, I was very young when I joined Spotify. I was 21. So it was basically my first not my first job not being where I wasn't the founder myself. But that was very inspiring to kind of be part of that, like, let's do it. Let's go get him. This whole movement of, of of doing that every day. That was great. Gosu Gamers. That was right. first that was your first company, right? And that was you were there before mm -hmm. before Spotify, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, it was my teenage years basically. Yeah, well I mean all teenage boys like two things. One of them is video games. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess that's true today. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's been true for at least my generation too. Uh, <laughs> You're right. Okay. And so uh, circa a lot uh, Atari 2600 for those that are wondering my generations go to. Sure. So that, that was a very big, it's a very big esports esports website. What was yeah. the founder market fit and then product market fit story? <laughs> well, the founder market fit was my brother was great at playing the games and I was, I wanted to be part of it, but I wasn't as great at playing. So I was like, what can I do? You know? And I started writing about my brother when he was playing games and published those posts online. And I was like 11 years old. And then two years later, those writings ended up being added to the site, uh, originally called Starcraft Gamers. Uh, and I just kept writing and writing about my brother and all these other players. And it was basically like a fan site. And because I, I mean, I loved the games. So I kept playing and I kept writing. And then that, the, the, I think one key difference I did compared to some, a few, the few other sites that were out there was that they were in Swedish and mine was in English, although I couldn't even spell. And that just, a that just gave me a lot of, a, a much bigger market. And so 
I think I copied a lot from what the other news sites were doing, but I just did it in English. And that proved to be the successful recipe because it ended up growing and growing and growing and growing. And, and we had millions of gamers on that site and, you know, staff of 50 people uh, just writing and covering uh, gaming events. And so, you know, it's really, it's really, I think my, yeah, it's good fit for, because I like the game, but also not, I wasn't good enough to be all, uh, all, all, uh, all in on the game. Yeah, to spend now. all my time gaming itself. Yeah, right. exactly. Unfortunately, that seems more fun than writing, especially for, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, I got to be the I got to be the manager of the national team because uh, I started the national team. There wasn't a national team, so I said we're going to start one. And who did I put on the team? Well, I put my brother on the team. <laughs> <laughs> Inside recruiting. Yeah. Yes, and then I had some uh, some uh, tryouts, and then eventually we, he he couldn't be a part of the team anymore. But um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, and then in terms of product. If if you would have had one for Pong, I swear to God, I would have a running man. Nobody knows what those are. <laughs> I would have nope. dominated that space. But anyway, sorry. No. And you, and then you were, you were right. saying product market fit. Yeah, and that's for product market fit. I think. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't thinking about it in those terms, but obviously, uh, a lot of people wanted to to read about the gamers. And I think today, it's a esports is a billion dollar industry, and and a lot of it is driven by you know, your, your fans to these fantastic gamers or these fantastic teams for winning all these prize money. But back then it wasn't, wasn't an obvious. And, and I, I like doing what you're doing now is interviewing a lot of people and writing about them and, and posting their photo. And then people would write about or, or come and read about that. So the private market fit was really good from that perspective, but we had forums and we had match videos and, and all that. So it was a lot of gamers just hanging out, uh, reading about that. So it's pretty easy from that perspective. It's like, here's what I would want to read. Uh, or want to have as content, and then that's what we made. So it's back to the idea that like you got to be able to know what's valuable for yourself. Uh, that makes it way easier. What is your personal motto? My personal motto is probably if I had to pick one, like I have a long list, but I'd probably be to know your dream. It sounds uh, cheesy, but I think I think we've lost dreaming to some extent. And by dreaming, I mean I think of it as the act of creating visions. But visions has this feeling that it's very clear and it's exclusive and the visionary can think of visions and that now everybody has to follow the vision. If you think about dreams, it's more accessible and approachable. Everybody has some kind of dream. We can, and they're, you know, dreams are somewhat fuzzy so that they, they can, your dream can, can join with mine and they can overlap and, and they're not as exclusive. So the people that I know, that have been really successful entrepreneurs, they have that dream of what they want the world to be or how they want to change. And if I say, you know, what's the one thing that you would change about the world? Uh, those entrepreneurs certainly have thought about a lot about that. And, but the interesting thing is, I think all of us really have a deep understanding of what we would want to change for ourselves in our own lives, but also about the world. But it does take a little bit of effort to sit down and be like, what is the highest dream that I can come up with? What is a better version of, than the dream I just made up? And you're going to find, at least I found, that there's actually a threshold to how big you can dream. It, it, it is hard at some point to be like, okay, if I made my own life 10x better, what would it look like? Okay, and then now 10x better than that. What would that look like? And then you're like, I actually can't think of what would be better. And daring yourself to do that and go through that exercise and really being clear about what those dreams are being able to communicate those, 
I think greatly enhances your ability to get there and to get there not just for yourself but for others as well. I think so much of our society today is is about accepting the world around us as it is because like the fact that we end up have living in houses, driving cars, and going to work, those are not necessarily the only way that society could have been built. But we all are like, that's the way it is, and that's the way we're going to do it, you know? And we just accept it straight up. But I think instead of remodeling that and thinking about here's the way I want it to be, I think it's so important. And I think just in friendships, in, in families, at work, shared dreaming and, and going through those exercises uh, together, I think is, is so important and has been a big, uh, a big uh, motivation and joy for me to do together with people. My guest today has been Jonathan Litke, successful technology entrepreneur. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks for hosting me, Jim. Everyone else, if you find value in this episode, I hope you will share it on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, screen capture, tag me. I will send you something special. Have a wonderful rest of your day.